So I'll offer a, a few opening reflections for this retreat time, and then we'll have an opportunity for a few questions. Well, I realize that a number of you are very familiar with Buddhist practice, uh, some of you uh, probably not so much, and so I'll try not to use too much technical language, uh, but necessarily along the way there'll be, uh, 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 I'll be using the words of the Pali, uh, which is the, the language of the scriptures of the southern Buddhist uh, tradition, called Pali, it's a relative of Sanskrit, and so the uh, the scriptures of the Theravada and Buddhist world are all written in the Pali language, so I'll necessarily be using a few Pali words along the way, but I'll try to define or clarify the meaning of those as I go. One of the, um, the basic principles of working with the mind and spiritual training uh, in general is uh, to have a, a ground of loving kindness, a basis of loving kindness being the way that we are working uh, with our mind, with our body, with with each other. Uh, in Buddhist practice, often uh, what's called metta bhavana is a Pali term, <laughs> straight away. Uh, metta is loving kindness, so the uh, bhavana is meditation. So the meditation on loving kindness is often described as an individual practice, a particular way of developing. Uh, that attitude of mind, uh, a loving, kindly attitude of mind. So it's often presented as a separate individual practice, but I like to um, emphasize that uh, it's far more helpful if we uh, say establish loving kindness, not as a special separate practice, but that's the basic attitude that we use all, uh, all the time, really in terms of working with our body, working with our mind, working uh, with each other, uh, and working with the world. Our loving kindness has, uh, uh, has two aspects, I would say, to it, uh, really. There's a, a receptive aspect and, a, and an expressive aspect. So when we talk about loving kindness, we might uh, take the words, you know, may you be happy, may you be well, or may I be happy, may I be well, as a kind of outgoing feeling. And so uh, many of the practices of loving-kindness are based around the, bringing those, uh, those words, those ideas to mind. May, may I be well, may all beings be well. And then spreading the thought of loving-kindness uh, all around to all, you know, all the people nearby, all beings, and further and further around the world. Different classes of beings that, we, beings that we like, beings that we're indifferent to, and beings that we dislike or who dislike us, and such like. So that I would say that's all part of the expressive aspect of loving kindness, but the receptive aspect the, uh, is what I, I would call a radical acceptance. And so this is, uh, I feel, a, a, a very important, or maybe the, the most important aspect of loving kindness, is uh, that attitude that everything belongs. When we're trying to train our mind, just like in this little exercise of sitting together for half an hour and making the effort to, to focus on our, our, the feelings of the body or the, the rhythm of the breath. Uh, how easy, and I'm not reading anybody's mind, so I don't have that ability, but how easy it can be to think, oh, oh I've, got, I've drifted off again, I can't, I can't believe I've fallen asleep again. Ah, I'm a terrible meditator, I'm sure I'm the worst meditator here, and uh, I've got to do better, you know, I'm, I'm losing points. And... Uh, turning the meditation into a kind of replay of our school experience or, or um, uh, our, work, uh, our work life and performance, <laughs> performance assessment. Uh, and so that uh, the effort to work with the mind and to, to sit in meditation and so forth becomes a, 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 a contentious, that we're contending against the mind or, or contending against the body, trying to make the body be a certain way, trying to force the mind to be a certain way. And so uh, the word contention is like a, an argument or a fight, so you're contending against the way things are. And, uh, and so basically no matter, no, there isn't an attitude there is not an attitude of loving kindness, but rather one of, I want to be this way, I'm going to make it happen. 
and a, and a forcefulness and a contention in in the mind. So by radical acceptance, then there's a recognition that everything belongs this sleepy state of mind or agitated agitated state of mind or the the glorious family of dogs all around Deer Park Institute, the the dog choir that uh, uh, fills the air from time to time. Uh, Often at night time, I have choir practice at night. That... uh, the, uh, rather than being a problem or an enemy or an intrusion, then that's, well, we came here to, to Deer Park, the dogs have been living here all the time. It's like, it's their place, so why shouldn't they bark? You know? it's, it's, uh, we, if we say, I'm trying to be quiet and concentrate, like the dogs don't know that, they're just, have, they're just doing their dog thing. You know? It's their business. <laughs> so if we are getting upset about them barking, then where's the problem? It's not with the dogs, it's with number one. So that quality of radical acceptance is to recognize that this ache in our leg or this drifting thought, this, this moment of, of distractedness, these, these are all part of the way things are. doesn't mean that we like everything about the way things are. We're not trying to, uh, say, like the ache in our leg or, the, uh, or the, the kind of painful memory or whatever it might be. We're not trying to like the unlikable, but we're saying, here it is. This is, this is part of, of the way things are. And so at that basis of, of acceptance, um, as, uh, in a way, as, uh, brings the heart into alignment with the reality of the present. The, what we like, what we don't like, and all that we are indifferent to. We have, have uh, no... Um, uh, uh, we have an indifference towards, or not have no have, have no di- sort of like or dislike in relationship to that. So that uh, uh, many years ago, when when Ajahn Sumato first came to the West, and he was teaching loving kindness meditation, and he he was using these may I be may I be happy, may all beings be happy, this kind of language, he found that um, quite a few people got irritated by that. And, oh, this is very uh, this is. A uh, very sentimental Ajahn. <laughs> this is uh, just trying to uh, to think pink, to to just create this positive attitude that's sort of over everything, and it's not very realistic, and it's just a bit, seems a bit superficial. And uh, Ajahn Sumedho is a, a very uh, a very responsive teacher, and he uh, uh, he listened to this criticism and said, "Actually, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, it's uh, I can see that." And he started to look. And when we talk about metta, loving kindness, what really is the most important part of it? And he said, well, it's not really, it's not really about liking, trying to make ourselves like the unlikable or like everything, but love is not the same as like. And this was a, a, an important insight for him. We can love or we can accept even things that we don't like. And uh, sometimes uh, with loving-kindness practice, it can seem that we're trying to make ourselves uh, like everybody <laughs> or to, to like every as- aspect of our body, all the aches and pains and illnesses and, and such like. And he thought, no, that's why it's, it feels out of balance or out of tune. Um, and so he changed the language of it to not dwelling in aversion, to to not... Uh, take an an aversive or contentious attitude towards things. So in that spirit, I like to use this term of radical acceptance. A heart that says, yes, here it is. (laughs) This is exactly the way it is. Whether I like it or not, here it is. It's this way. And then on that basis of acceptance, then we can recognize, well, this uh, this is wholesome, and this, if uh, if this is followed, and if this attitude of mind or this intention, this interest, if this is followed, it'll have a good result. It'll be, it'll be wholesome, it'll be uh, liberating, it'll be uh, useful, beneficial. If this is followed, it'll be harmful or afflictive and, and bring difficulties. So, uh, again, when, when you use language like everything belongs, then you say, well, what about violence? What about selfishness? What about jealousy? What about... Uh, uh, what about killing and, uh, and dishonesty? So, well, yes, on a on a on the broad level, that belongs because it's part of life. <laughs> Doesn't mean to say that it's good or it's beautiful or, or noble, uh, but 
it's part of the natural order. So here it is, it's like this. And so whether it's in the world around us or the violence or jealousy or selfishness or, or uh, greediness of our own mind, it, uh, here it is, it, it belongs. But then when that, those qualities are really received and accepted as they are, then that clarity of, of knowing what they are, then that helps, to, uh, helps the heart to recognize this is wholesome, this is beneficial, this is beautiful, you know, put energy into this and this is worthy of following. Or it recognizes no, this is unwholesome, it's unhelpful, this is destructive, yeah, leave that be, don't, uh, don't follow that, don't give that energy, don't support that. So that uh, that uh, receptive quality of loving kindness, I feel is, uh, and hopefully people can understand what I'm saying here, as a basis for working with our body, with our mind, with the sitting meditation, walking meditation, and and uh, trying to maintain mindfulness during the day, uh, this quality of non-contention, of uh, a radical acceptance, and then uh, the the expressive quality of metta is then based upon that loving kind, that uh, that acceptance. Then there can be that well-wishing, that kind of benevolence, that outgoing quality of uh, say uh, well-wishing towards other beings uh, in a more uh, say outgoing way. Just like the breath, there's the in-breath and the out-breath, and uh, I would say the the in-breath is is kind of more important. That's what brings the oxygen in. <laughs> That's the, the oxygen that keeps our bodies alive. So the in-breath is a little bit more important than the out-breath. We need both, but the in-breath is really the life source. And I would say that in terms of loving-kindness, that, that quality of radical acceptance, that's the, really the, the life source of metta. So when uh, we are, are working to practice concentration or developing insight, in a, as the, this retreat time evolves, we'll be... Uh, uh, using both of these aspects of traditional Buddhist meditation, concentration practice and insight practice, that uh, all of that, I would say, it all depends on a ground of, of loving-kindness, of that radical acceptance, and that the, if we can find that attitude of heart and develop it, cultivate it, then it's a, a tremendous uh, benefit in, in helping our spiritual development to take shape in a in a good way. Another of, of the aspects of uh, uh, Dhamma practice that I like to emphasize at the beginning of any retreat, uh, along with a basis of, uh, of radical acceptance, uh, is that of uh, the, the principle of being ready to learn from everything, whether we like it or not. Uh, and this is a... a uh, a very central principle of our teacher, Venerable Ajahn Chah, who was um, uh, uh, the uh, one who established the uh, our main monastery in northeast Thailand, and uh, was uh, the teacher for many of us. He was my my preceptor as a monk, and passed away in 1992. So quite a f- uh, now um, 30 years ago now, January 16th. Um, 1992, so over 30 years ago, he passed away. But uh, one of the principal uh, teachings that he referred to over and over again is make everything your teacher. So don't think this because there's somebody sitting up on a high seat doing, making all the noise that that's the teacher. He says, really, you know, you are the teacher. <laughs> you teach yourself, and that it's uh, uh, not just the, the the words from the person sitting on the high seat are uh, one thing, but they are they're there to help you teach it yourself. And along with the words that get spoken from the, the seat in the middle, um, also the, the ache in your knee, that can be your teacher. That, um, that the unpaid debt uh, that, that you're worrying about. Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, but just statistically it's likely that a few people here have got some debts they haven't paid. That, uh, <clears throat> that that's on your mind. That can be your teacher. The, uh, the, our, our beautiful array of dogs barking in the district, they can be our teachers. The, um, the chilly weather, the you know, cold weather, uh, can, be, uh, uh, can be our teacher, just as the beautiful blue skies and, uh, and, and good friendship 
and pleasant, uh, delicious food can be our teachers. Everything in between. If you set that clearly in mind to let everything be your teacher, then nothing can go wrong with this retreat. Marvelous. <laughs> Guaranteed. If you have the right attitude, nothing can go wrong. Um, uh, the, even if you fall over and twist your ankle and, uh, oh no, how could I do this? I've twisted my ankle first day of the retreat. This is so inconvenient. Rather than my twisted ankle is getting in the way of my practice. It's like, oh, okay, this is, here's my teacher <laughs> with this walking stick or this crutch or these bandages and whatever. Uh, one of our d dear Dhamma brothers, Ajahn Viradhamma, was leading a retreat in Thailand and uh, he, uh, he s slipped on a, a slippery bathroom floor and, and smashed his shoulder. So he's just had to have surgery. In the, he's in a hospital in Bangkok, just having had surgery. He's supposed to be leading the retreat. <laughs> really inconvenient. But then, you know, the... If we're skillful, rather than than thinking only oh, the, the retreat's ruined or or uh, that's uh, spoiled everything, it's, okay, what can we learn from this? What does this teach us? And so, I, I uh, again at the beginning of a retreat time, I strongly encourage that setting that in place to uh, to let everything be our teacher: the pleasant, the painful, the the neutral. Have all of it be what we learn from. Not like I just want to learn from you know the, the proper instruction from the <laughs> from the from the middle seat and everything else is just extra. The, no, that, 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 uh, that niggling uh, itch behind your ear, the, the pain in your knee, the person in the next room snoring, yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the wind in the trees, the, the beautiful blue skies, the, para, the paragliders floating overhead, <laughs> and the effects that has on your mind, that, the, that can all be a part of what teaches us. If we let it, and so one of the, the, the collections of Ajahn Chah's teachings is called "Everything Is Teaching Us," and we can hear these words, and and uh, you maybe you think, "Yeah, that's that's a great idea, very good," and then two minutes later, <laughs> I don't want that, <laughs> well, more more of this, and and we've we've lost perspective. So it does take a bit of work to keep reminding ourselves to let everything be the teacher, but if that's really taken to heart then it can be of tremendous benefit. It can really change the landscape of our practice rather than, I want to learn from this, I don't want to learn from that. This is how it should be, this is how it shouldn't be. <laughs> this is wrong. Now the way that he would express the same principle is, he would say, like and dislike are of equal value. Generally, if something... If we come across, if we have something that we like, we say, good. And the mind makes it into an absolute good. Yes. This is a good mind state, or this is good food, or this is a good place to stay. or you know, I've got a good roommate. Yes, I like this. This is good. And then we grasp that. <clears throat> or we dislike it. Oh, this is a wrong place. Or this is uh, you know, really uncomfortable. And, and I don't like this. And, and we... Uh, we turn that dislike into an absolute bad. We're not thinking it through. We're not saying, I decide to call this absolutely bad <laughs> and hold it that way. But because of ignorance, not seeing clearly, that, that's what we tend to do. If we like something, it turn, gets, turns into a, something that has absolute <coughs> positive value. If it's, if it's something we dislike, it's absolute negative value. Failing, loss, uh, pain, these are all, uh, don't want bad, wrong. Uh, don't like and it's natural to push that away or success comfort uh, praise yes more please <laughs> that we uh, naturally grasp that and, and hold on to it so if we instead see like and dislike are of equal value and that they can't possibly be absolute they can't possibly be anything absolute about them they're just momentary impressions of liking and disliking, coming and going and changing. So that there's a, um, uh, a way that we shift the attitude towards success and failure, gain and loss, comfort, discomfort, what we like, what we dislike, what's, what's convenient and how we would like it, and what's inconvenient and how we wouldn't like it.
to to go to the theme of, of our retreat uh, for a little bit. Sakaya Ditti, self-view, the first obstacle to enlightenment. So uh, I forget what sort of um, write-up there was in the retreat information. Um, I, I think I sent it to Praveen a few months ago, so <laughs> I don't remember exactly what uh, what detail there is in that in that write-up. But probably those of you who've uh, come together might have Googled Sakaya Ditti or uh, looked it up on Wikipedia uh, or to uh, look, uh, looked at some of the literature around that. But uh, uh, again, for, particularly for those who are not so familiar with Buddhist teachings. The, the, uh, the Buddha was a, a great list maker in order for his students to remember things easily. There were a few different methods he used. Uh, one was very graphic similes, colorful images um, that he would use to help us to be reminded of principles and to explain principles. So um, uh, graphic, you know, clear similes was uh, one of the, the, the things that he used. Uh, and another was making lists, and so it, it makes it easier to recall and to remember if you've got things in, in a list, like the Eightfold Path, or the Four Noble Truths, or the Three Characteristics of Existence. So, uh, so people uh, sometimes wonder, why did the Buddha make all these lists? It's because he was a teacher. <laughs> it's to help his students to remember. Like, wasn't there, how many were there? Uh, uh, oh. This view is right view is the first one, and then uh, what's the next one? Is it right speech? No, there's one before right speech. What is it? If you know there's eight, you've got to keep going until you remember all eight. So it's a, it's a pedagogic uh, principle to make lists so things are easy to remember. And so also, he did sometimes gave teachings in verse, so it's easy, easier to remember the, the, uh, the, the um, poetry of it. Uh, and so forth. So one of the lists that he made was of the ten uh, obstacles to enlightenment, called the ten fetters. Uh, a fetter is like handcuffs or chains. A fetter is sort of things that, that tie you down. So they're called the ten samyojana in the Pali. Samyojana or fetter, uh, ten obstacles. Um, and they, the, these are arranged to, in, in, in order... Uh, and they uh, they define the the levels of enlightenment. So the the first three are self view, sakayaditi, and then uh, doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. The Pali word for that is vichikicha, and um, then the third one is attachment to rites and rituals or to conventions. Sila Pata Paramasa. These are long Pali words. <laughs> so this isn't a study session. So, but you know, I just mentioned these words for you. So those three are the they they define what needs to be let go of the 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 obstacles that need to be uh, transcended or the fetters that need to the chains that need to be broken in order to arrive at the first level of enlightenment. That's called stream entry. Um, and then uh, that that level of stream entry, the Buddha made a, a lot of emphasis on, saying, "You know, this is the point of no return. If if the mind is able to reach that 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 level of of realization, then there's really no falling back. You can uh, the, the enlightenment is guaranteed at that point. So, uh, and then again, with many graphic images, <laughs> he used uh, at one point he he scratched the ground in front of him and said, "What do you think?" Uh, is the, what, what is greater in quantity, the, the dirt under my fingernail or the great earth itself? Well, venerable sir, <laughs> the dirt under your fingernail is a very small amount and the great earth is very, very large. He said, even so, the amount of suffering that one who has made the breakthrough to stream entry can expect to experience is comparable to the dirt under my fingernail. The suffering that one who has not made the breakthrough to stream entry can expect to experience is comparable to the great earth. So he was very good at these sort of uh, attention-grabbing similes. <laughs> so, so, um, so that uh, our subject for for this week, the theme is just the first one of those three. Um, so we kind of a, a very modest goal to explore this this first one, but uh, the um, so that those first three 
uh, self-view, doubt, and attachment to conventions. Uh, uh, they, they, are, they are interrelated to some degree, but uh, they, um, they are, once they've been fully let go of and, for, uh, and transcended, then that level of stream entry has been realized. Just for your information, then the, the next uh, level is called uh, Once Returner, or Sakadagami, S-A-K-A-D-A-G-A-M-I, Sakadagami. And Once Returner means uh, only, re- only being reborn in the human realm one more time. So if a being has reached the, the level of stream entry, then, and this, uh, I, I know not every, everybody who comes along to these events likes the idea of past lives or future lives, but this, uh, this, this uh, way of uh, um, speaking in terms of Buddhist psychology uses that format of past lives and future lives uh, as it's sort of a part of its mode of expression. So uh, someone who's reached stream entry, they're guaranteed full and complete enlightenment within seven lifetimes. And they, uh, they cannot be reborn in any of the lower realms, as an animal, or in the hell realms, or as a, uh, in the ghost realms, the hungry ghost realms. It's called, it says that the, the gates to the lower realms are closed. So that's very appealing to many people. <laughs> and that and total enlightenment is guaranteed within seven lifetimes, like with, with, you know, with, with absolute surety. Uh, uh, once returner is that enlightenment is guaranteed with no more than one return to the the human world, and so those the um, the the level of uh, once returner the the characteristics of that are that uh, sense desire and ill will are greatly reduced. So they're not com- not completely without sense desire or, or completely without aversion or, or anger, but it's greatly diminished. Um, so a stream enter can still get angry or be lustful, but um, the, uh, the, the Asaka Dagami will, will still experience the, the lustfulness or, or sense desire or ill will, but greatly reduced. Then the next level is called Anagami or non-returner, and so one who has reached the, the, the level of, of anagami uh, uh, at the, uh, uh, after the end of this, this human life, then they're guaranteed to, to be born in one of the higher Brahma worlds and realize enlightenment from those, those high Brahma worlds called the, the pure abodes. And so that uh, they will not be reborn in the, in the human world or have to experience the physical discomforts of, of, a, of a body and such like. And that full enlightenment is, is uh, guaranteed from the, the pure abodes. And then uh, the, uh, uh, and for an anagami, they have completely let go of sense desire and let go of ill will. So they don't experience any aversion or any, any lustfulness. And uh, then the fourth level, where all of the ten fetters are broken, um, then they have uh, let go of the remaining five. So we've only so covered uh, covered five so far. So uh, self-view, doubt, uh, attachment to conventions, uh, sense desire, and ill will. So the last five uh, that all go with arahantship are uh, attachment to um, blissful states based on form, rupa raga, attachment to blissful states of mind based on formlessness, so like very, very powerful bright states of mind that have no, no object at all, but are just sort of uh, formless, arupa. And then the last three, uh, which um, will be significant later in the week. <laughs> no, I'm not guaranteeing arahantship for the, the retreatants. Don't, uh, don't get your hopes up. I mean, it's possible, but... Uh, I wouldn't promise anything. Um, but uh, so the, the eighth of these ten fetters is asmi mana. Asmi means I am. Mana is conceit. So that uh, it's, it's somewhat related to, to self-view because um, self-view is in, 
is quite coarse in a way. It's, like, it's the belief, I am the body, I am the personality, I am a man, I am a woman, I am British, I am Ajahn Amaro, I am 66 years old, I, this is Deer Park Institute, today is the, the 5th of December, uh, and the, the way the mind takes conventional truths and makes them into absolute realities or holds them as absolute things. So I am the body, I am the personality, is the, sort of the, the heart of, of Sankhaya Ditti. So Asmimana is, even when the mind is very, very refined and a, 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 has let go of sense desire and ill will and all of those other qualities, there can still be that I, me, my feeling that doesn't land on a particular object, but it's still present. The, the I, experience, I experiencing blissful states or I experiencing um, uh, infinite light or infinite joy or such like that I am can still be there so that's when the, it uses the word conceit mana it doesn't just mean like the English use of the word conceit as in pride or being inflated it's the the I has been conceived it's like something that has been brought into being so it's much more subtle than the English use of the word so it's not perfect <laughs> uh, to use the word conceit but it's as close as you can get in English. So mana is that conceiving of an I, an I, me, mine, I-making and mind-making. So asmi mana is the conceit of identity. And so that is a, 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 a subtle quality of identification and attachment. So even when um, there's no um, identification with the body and the personality, there can still be the... I the experiencer, I the one who's making choices, I the uh, the one who's um, uh, who's aware of this this uh, state of, of being. So that uh, it's a it's a subtle quality of, uh, of is, uh, that is uh, of I making and mind making, but it is something that can be explored in 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 meditation and something that is very helpful to understand how the mind can uh, can uh, create that and buy into that, believe in that, even when there's seemingly uh, that, uh, oh, I'm not really a human being, I'm not a person. Uh, this is just, the, you know, the mind is not really attached to this. Oh, great. <laughs> that, uh, oh, my mind is not attached to the body. So, but who's that my? <laughs> you know, what is it that is doing the owning of that experience, what is it that's knowing that feeling of I'm not attached to the body? <laughs> so again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I, I feel it's a, a useful area to look at. So later in the week, I'll spend a bit of time exploring that uh, asmi mana, asmi, um, in uh, probably very uh, identical in in Sanskrit asmi, meaning I am mana conceit. Then the last two uh, uh, of the ten fetters. Uh, number nine is restlessness, which doesn't mean fidgeting on your cushion, but <laughs> kind of like, well, when's it going to be over? <laughs> it's not that kind of um, coarse sort of restlessness, but it's the a, a subtle kind of restlessness of of something over there is more interesting, more real than what's here. There's a it's like an attachment to time. There's there's a there's a future that's got something that this moment hasn't got. Ooh, what's that over there? There's there's something that is not present that is that's got a promise of something better or something uh, something um, th- painful or threatening that's there that's not here. And so that uh, it's an attachment to time and it's an attachment to. Uh, to location, that um, it is is uh, so. It's that kind of a restlessness of oh, what's that? <laughs> and that uh, uh, the the final uh, sangyojana, the final, the last one of the of the ten fetters is ignorance or avicca. And so uh, vija means awareness, awakened awareness. Avicca means uh, unawareness. So the the Tibetan word rigpa. Uh, is exactly the same. That is, vicha is rigpa in Tibetan, avicha is ma rigpa, uh, ignorance. That, uh, so there's a, a, 
a direct parallel there. So that the, so the tenth fetter is uh, is ignorance, not seeing clearly. So all obscurations to clear seeing have fallen away at that point, and that recognition of that there isn't an over there. <laughs> there's only there's only here. There isn't another time. The the, the dharma is timeless. It's uh, there isn't there isn't a then. There's only this this present reality. So that gives a, a little bit of a map of the landscape. We won't be exploring all of that, but I thought at the beginning of things it would be helpful to have a bit of a, uh, a picture of that. So I'll open things up for questions in a, in a moment, but the last thing I should say, and I mentioned this when I was here at Deer Park before, was... Um, the very first Buddhist teacher that I met when I was about 19 in 1976 uh, was uh, His Holiness Dujon Rinpoche, who um, uh, I believe is the grandfather of Zongsa Kiense Rinpoche, who was the founder of this place. So I haven't met Zongsa Kiense Rinpoche, but I met his grandfather <laughs> a long time ago. 1976 was um, more than 45 years ago, so quite a while back. But that was when I was a hairy student in London. That was my very first contact with Buddhist teachings in this lifetime. So uh, I do have a, a sense of indebtedness and gratitude to uh, this lineage and to Zongsa um, Kinsei Rinpoche's granddad. <laughs> and uh, His Holiness Dujon Rinpoche was the, uh, the head of the Nyingma um, lineage at that time. He's passed away a long time ago, but... Um, and he's reappeared, I think, <laughs> since then. Hmm? Yeah, I thought so, yeah. <laughs> so I met the previous one, not the current one. But the, uh, so I, I have a, uh, there's a, a, um, uh, a gratitude that I have for this lineage and, and also that aspect of being present uh, here at Deer Park and being able to be in this field of um, activity and teaching. Also that... Um, Rinpoche had a retreat for two or three thousand people uh, running up to very recently. Just finished, what, a week or two ago? So about three weeks ago. So so I'm very glad to be able to participate and I feel a a gratitude. I was a confused 19-year-old at the time, so most of it just (laughs) went straight over my head, but it... uh, it probably had some subtle uh, motivating effects at that time. But the, the lineage I joined, it wasn't because of rejecting Tibetan Buddhism, it was just I was still in the middle of a university degree. And then when I, I finished my studies and, and uh, went traveling, uh, I um, was wandering around in Southeast Asia, and it was a forest monastery in Northeast Thailand that I, I wandered into rather than a a Tibetan monastery here in India. So that was that was the, the gate that I entered and, and what I've been doing ever since. So I'd like to open things up for some questions for about 20 minutes or so. We'll have a break at, at 4.30, but uh, we can have time, particularly because there's quite a few new people, um, then I'm happy to open things up for some questions, either um, uh, relating to what I've just been describing or more basic principles of, uh, of Buddhist practice, but you know, please, if we can keep sort of somewhere close to the subject rather than, you know, you know my aunt's got a terrible disease, you know, what, how, what should I do to help her? I appreciate our relatives and families and external concerns are many and various, but if we keep the questions to um, the, the theme for this time, I would be, uh, I think it would help everyone. So please. Yes. can wait for the microphone so that everything is everyone can hear yeah yeah, yeah my question referred to the idea of uh, loving kindness mm-hmm. and the idea of radical acceptance which i thought is you know very in- encompassing you know anyway but then the question that came to mind is then how do we justify or explain change that we might want if we see something which we if it's radical acceptance we accept it. But what if we, there is a need or a necessity to change it? So then what perspective do we bring 
to motivating change and making that happen? Well, accept, uh, uh, very good question. Acceptance doesn't mean approval. And again, it's a little bit of a limitation of language. Um, uh, that uh, it's not acceptance isn't quite perfect because it does. It can easily mean like if you accept something that like you go along with it. But it's really um, that sense of uh, uh, acknowledgement. Here it is, and. So then, when, as I was saying, when you really open your heart to everything and you recognize, well, this is, this is unskillful, this is um, like you know, uh, uh, some aspect of your own mind, you know, a particular mental habit, uh, um, that, yeah, that, that, uh, that could do with, with taking a, a different direction or that, that could be improved, then that quality of, uh, of openness, part of it is... Uh, say the mindfulness and wisdom of the, of the is also an aspect of the the heart. The jitta is uh, then brought into being. That's that's what comes into play. That's what recognizes. Oh, this is wholesome. This is beneficial and useful. This is unwholesome. This is unbeneficial. Sometimes both with concentration and with, with loving kindness. Uh, and in and in Buddhism, often it, it can be misread as a kind of passivity. And when we talk about being the observer or being the watcher or the one who knows, it can bring a, a kind of unskillful dislocation or dissoci- dissociation. That's a very long English word. It's like a kind of the mind is abstracted and you're trying to turn yourself into like a video camera, like just recording the data of experience. But we're not video cameras, we're alive. <laughs> the mind is alive. <laughs> and, uh, and so that that quality of mindfulness and wisdom then is uh, is able to notice well this this is un- unskillful this is obstructed this needs some work on it this thing this a better direction could be taken here and so then that um, that mindfulness and wisdom then that informs uh, right resolution or right intention samar sankapa uh, and then right effort um, some are vayama, these are all aspects of the Eightfold Path, then that comes into play in terms of, of then uh, uh, the effort that is made and then right speech, right action, and right livelihood then following also from, uh, from that. But it's, uh, ex- uh, acceptance doesn't mean approval and so that there can be an acceptance of uh, recognition of well, this is how it is in this moment, but also our capacity to act is also part of the way things are in this moment. And our intentionality and our ability to apply energy uh, to what is going to be useful, that's also part of the way things are. So it's often that there's a, a false kind of passivity that's brought into the picture that's not really what Buddha Dhamma is about. Uh, uh, the Buddha was very active. <laughs> he did a lot of stuff during his lifetime. And if we take the Buddha's life as an example, you can see he saw that there was um, a lot of things within his world and, the, and life in India that, that could be done better, uh, that could be improved. And he put huge amounts of effort and energy into taking action and, and setting principles in place to, to help things be better. So... Uh, that uh, acceptance is, is, is the ground, here it is, and rather than sort of judging things like it shouldn't be this way, or this, is, this, is, uh, um, uh, this doesn't belong, it's like uh, if you start off with, with that, then there's, again, there's that kind of, um, the, the mind has invested in dislike and, uh, and made that some, uh, given that a false, Solidity, a false absoluteness. So that that's why we talk about mind training. It's not just uh, watching what the mind does and not doing anything about it. <laughs> it's you're watching what the mind does, and then <laughs> whatever is wholesome and beneficial, you strengthen it and cultivate it. Whatever is unwholesome and unbeneficial, you leave it alone, and let it fade. You can use the microphone. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I heard this phrase called engaged Buddhism, and it's something engaged. Engagementism. Engaged Buddhism. Uh, engaged Buddhism. Engaged yeah. Buddhism. So I've, it's a term I've heard quite recently. It's something that sort of intrigues me, 
and uh, it seemed to offer a, some kind of a, a perspective which would allow you to engage at the same time in, in a Buddhist, uh, within the framework of, uh, framework of a Buddhist way of thinking. So I, I just want to leave that question here, whether that's something that may be of relevance in the context of this uh, uh, loving-kindness idea. So. Yeah, I would say that if it's, if it's Buddhism, it's naturally engaged. If it isn't engaged, it's not really Buddhism, in my not very humble opinion. So. Yeah, if you could wait for the microphone. I wanted to say that this retreat and the practices are so relevant for me and I really want to participate with my whole within there's something really urgent going on at my father can I be excused to make a call please I, I leave it to the management to look after that what do you say I'll get back to you <laughs> okay okay Thank you for your teachings. Um, I have a question around, is it Aimanas you said? The conceit? Uh, asmi As, mana. Asmi mana. Yeah. So is that connected also to manas, or uh, meaning in comparison, being a conceit, wanting to compare yourself always to another, as in equal, inferior, or superior? Yes. Is it? I don't know how it connects to what you're saying, so I'm just curious how you would link it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they're called the nine kinds of conceit. Well, sometimes there's three kinds of conceit. Other list says nine. So it's uh, so within the the matrix of con- conceit. So if you are uh, if you are worse than everyone and you think I am worse. If you're, the, if you're the same as everyone and you think you're the worst, or you're better than everyone and you think you're the worst, that's three kinds of conceit. If you're the same as everyone and you think you're worse than, if you're the same as everyone and you think you're the same as everyone, if you're the same as and you, uh, and you think you're better, that's the next three kinds of conceit. And if you are better than everyone and you think you're worst, if you're better than everyone and you think you're the same, if you're better than everyone and you think that you're better than everyone, those are the last three kinds of conceit. So any kind of I am, whether it's technically accurate or, or technically incorrect, they're all, they're all kinds of conceit. Right. So those are all the different kinds of mana. Thank you. So it is used in a different way than we have in the, sort of the English language where conceit means being sort of inflated or proud. But... Um, it's uh, any kind of I am. So even if you're better than everyone and you think I am better than everyone, that's a conceit. If, if, and if you're worse than, you think I'm worse than, that's an equal kind of conceit. <laughs> any, any I aming. Just because you mentioned this being more subtle, like it's a more refined quality than the self-view. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems quite gross, what you just talked about. Well, the, 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 um, uh, I mean, the word mana is quite broad. I mean, that's, that's, that's referring to it in, in the general field of right. human attitudes. Right. In terms of the ten fetters, asmi mana is one particular variety of mana which is, which is more subtle and specific. Okay. If, that, Thank if you. that's helpful. Yes, so the, the nine kinds are trying to cover everything. And so that can be, that can be quite coarse. And to do with, with uh, how you judge your own personality and so on and so forth. But Asmi Mana as the ninth of the ten fetters, or the eighth of the, of the ten fetters, is, uh, is much more sort of... Subtle. Uh, subtle and invisible. Right. You, you mentioned about the conceiving of... I. Conceiving, yes. Right. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, yeah the, uh, uh, the manyati is the Pali verb. Manyati. M-A-N with a tilde. N with a tilde. A-T-A. Manyati. 
is conceiving, and so that um, and then, uh, uh, so any kind of manyati, any kind of conceiving, whether it's coarse or subtle, is always going to bring uh, that disharmony or discord, dukkha, suffering uh, with it. Ajahn, what would be some of the uh, practice instructions to develop, for example, the receptive aspect of loving kindness in your tradition? How is that? How does, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, accept radically, use that as a principle. How do we meditatively, what are the instructions, some of the instructions? Well, uh, there's, all, there's a variety of ways you can approach that. Just setting an intention in place that, Okay, during today, uh, during the morning, med- morning meditation, for example, okay, during today, every time the mind makes a judgment, that doesn't belong, or, oh no, not that again, or like, oh, I don't need this, then to flag that as the mind saying this doesn't belong. And then to flag it, sort of <laughs> stage one, stage two, then to raise up the, the, the suggestion uh, why, you know, why is this not acceptable? This is everything belongs, and then to see if the the heart can find a place where that the thing that you just complained about or got or made a judgment. And if you if you set that if you take that practice seriously, and you set an intention like that, just to notice the number of times the mind makes that kind of judgment during a day, it can be quite shocking. It can. Not that you have to carry a notebook around, but it's it can, it's in the hundreds for most people. I mean, in, in things that all things that you approve of, but also the things that you that you dislike. It, it's quite amazing how unaware we are of the judgments that our mind makes, approving, disapproving, and um, and to notice every time the mind makes that kind of a a, a shift. To catch that, know that, question it, and then the the so part three <laughs> is then having uh, um, uh, say uh, rouse that question or th- this too belongs or, or doesn't this belong? Then to see the change and to feel the change of heart. That oh, of course. Well, why should <laughs> why should that not be there? Because. Uh, just because I don't like it, just because I've decided to call this meditation, this moment, you know, why, uh, 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 why should that particular sound from the street be be a problem or an obstacle? If I'm if I'm driving my car, the other sounds of the street are not a problem. It's because I'm sitting here aiming to be quiet. My mind says problem. <laughs> oh, look at that! And then as that letting go happens, and there's a a, a quality of of, um, of uh, uh, acceptance genuinely arises, notice what that's like. When the wrongness disappears, it's, oh, it's just a sound. Oh, it's just, it's just a, 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 a twisted ankle. Okay, this is, I call this inconvenient, but I think actually last time I was here, I think someone did injure themselves, if I remember correctly. I've done so many retreats, I can't remember exactly. What happened where? <laughs> but I was giving this as an example, and someone did did take a tumble and they were going around on crutches. And so then, once that shift has has happened, notice how oh, this is different. So then you're knowing that contrast between the mind believing in its judgments and then the having letting go, having let go of that, and that becomes a cumulative effect. So that's a one very simple direct exercise. Yes, this, if you could wait for that microphone. You solved that problem at home very quickly. <laughs> so please otherwise do surrender your phones and after you put your change your answering messages and the, the team will take good care yes please yeah so uh, what you mentioned right uh, i think th- th- there becomes a paradox like when your mind is uh, has been invo- indulging too much or in, in very unwholesome states 
it becomes slightly challenging to stay in the moment and just you know be be there and obviously when when you are in a retreat like this where you you have put yourself uh, you have kind of set that intention and you are doing that the alertness imp- improves and basically the the wheel shifting happens so what do you do uh, in daily life to ensure that not just in the hours when you are meditating or maybe whenever something something happens and you are not able to maintain your practices how do you ensure that you don't start drifting and and f- keep being mindful in in day to day life keep practicing <laughs> i mean it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a trite answer but it's kind of a joke i'm joking but not joking you know, that's one of the reasons why we practice is because it, a retreat environment is very sort of specialized, but it's not as though the only place where you can really practice is the retreat. This is rather like uh, um, if you're studying music, you're in, a, in a music school, you have a little music room with a piano and you're, you know, it's just a small room, you're all by yourself and you do your, your, your exercises over and over and over. But you're not doing that just to sit in a tiny room just <laughs> with a piano. You're, you're doing it so that you can play for other people. You can play in a, a broader situation. So a retreat is rather like the music room, you know, where you're, you're learning to uh, develop the skills that are useful, but uh, the, 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 in a way the performance <laughs> is, uh, is the rest of our life. So retreats are, like, it's are valuable and delightful, precious, but if you think, I can only practice at the retreat center and the rest is, ugh, just waiting for the next retreat, I'd say, well, you, we're holding it in an unhelpful way. So, um, in uh, the everyday life situations where you have to perform as a person, <laughs> you've got your, your name on the door, you know, the, the, on your business card, and uh, your people are... Uh, uh, asking you to make decisions and, do, and so on and so forth, then what, uh, one of the aspects of self-view and understanding it, it's not as though we're trying to not have a personality or to sort of evaporate, <laughs> be, trying to be nobody, but rather learning how to, to take on roles, being a child, being a mother, being a boss, being a, a worker, being a, a team member, whatever it might be, to, to pick up those roles and to engage in that, but without saying, this is who and what I am. Like, when I'm by myself in the room, I'm not a teacher. If I'm sitting up on the, <laughs> on the, on the platform in the middle, I'm the teacher. You know? And I often say this, I'm the abbot of Amaravati Monastery, I often say to people that, when I'm in my kuti, my, my cottage by myself, I'm not Ajahn Amaro. And they go, who are you? <laughs> oh, good question. But, uh, but no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the agile of anything. I'm just being in this building. That's all. You know. So part of the, the, the development of insight around self-view is putting on selves and taking them off. You know, being, and it's interesting, uh, a useful English word or a significant English word is person because it comes from the Latin persona, Per means through, sona is sound. It's, it means a mask. It's like the mask that you, an actor would speak through in a Roman or Greek theater. So it's literally, it's a mask. The person is a mask. So that being the child, being the parent, being the boss, being the, the, the worker, being the team member, being the ajahn, being the student, being the manager, you know, these are... Uh, it's like, I'm sure when Praveen's with his family, he's not the manager. <laughs> Is Praveen, you know, is a good son, or the, you know, the, 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 uh, or my my cousin who can do stuff, you know, um, and so the uh, letting go of self view, mysteriously, it helps us to be more selves, <laughs> more flexibly, and that we'd not identify with a particular role, and if we are attached to a certain role, like if I've got to always be the boss, then when you're with your family and you're still determined to be the boss. It's going to be problematic. Or when you retire, then you're no longer this sort of big shot. Uh, and then, who am I if I'm not this, this, if the professor or the the the, the CEO or the you know, the company head or whatever? It's like, I'm just 
out digging the garden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that that um, uh, that capacity to function in the world, uh, more the more that we're mindful, we're, when you, you were expecting a bigger variety of emotional states, decisions to be made, but um, the less that it's about me succeeding and me f being afraid of failure, me being praised, me being not wanting to be criticized, less it's about me and mine, the more effectively we can function in the, the different areas where we, we operate. There'll be more, more of that theme during the, the week, and that's kind of the main question. <laughs>